Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker brings together the finest literary communities on the web. With breakout brands, publishers, magazines, and other advertisers. It's an ad network for book people, for publishers, for authors, and for literary content providers. The Litbreaker ad network serves 5 million ads per month to nearly 1 million unique readers for dozens of happy advertisers. Do you run an online magazine or blog? You should check it out. Are you a publisher? Are you an author? Do you need to get the word out about a book? Uh, or do you need to get the word out about a product or service that would appeal to intelligent, bookish people? Look no further. Litbreaker bridges the gap between advertisers and the literary and pop cultural websites where their target customers spend their time. Visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's the very best way to reach book people online. It just is. That's litbreaker.com. Go there. Tell them I sent you. It's an advertising network for book nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Hello, right. everybody. This is it. This is other people. This is binding us at the level of consciousness. This is being listened to by small groups of indigenous peoples sitting cross-legged in a circle around a single mobile telephone. Thank you for listening. How are you today? How did you like that uh, intro there? <laughs> Feels a little bit uh, laborious. My name is Brad Listy, and uh, I'm sitting here in Los Angeles, California in a chair. Uh, I'm in a modified desert. I have to be honest with you. I'm sitting amid a, a tangle of highways and other forms of urban chaos. It's nice to be with you. My guest today is Michael J. Seidlinger. He's the author of several books. Uh, he's also the book reviews editor for Electric Literature, a terrific website. And uh, he's also the founder, the uh, publisher-in-chief of uh, civil, uh, civil Coping Mechanisms, an independent press that specializes in uh, innovative hard to classify fiction and poetry. Uh, Michael's latest novel is called The Laughter of Strangers. It's available now from Lazy Fascist Press. So, uh, you know, a very interesting guy with a lot of energy who uh, does a lot of different things, wears a lot of different hats, 
in the uh, literary community. He and I are going to be talking in just a bit. Uh, first, however, a, a quick message from one of our sponsors. If you would like a free audiobook download, uh, you can get one. Just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. There are over 150,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Just go there. It's uh, audibletrial.com slash other people, and you get a free audiobook. So uh, I was feeling uh, paralyzed earlier, a little bit paralyzed by this research that I've been doing for this book that I'm writing. Do you, uh, do you ever get paralyzed by what you read, psychologically speaking? Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> uh, I've been reading a lot of philosophy, which I think uh, as a uh, genre might, might lend itself to this sort of experience more than other book genres. And uh, I've also been reading some books with a, a spiritual bent and that sort of thing, like taking notes, uh, writing on note cards, which I have uh, mentioned before. And uh, I can find myself at times feeling completely dazed in the aftermath of this process. I feel stupefied and uh, uncertain of what to do next. Like I move on with my day, or I attempt to move on with my day, feeling as though I've been hollowed out. Like an avocado. <laughs> or perhaps a coconut. It's like, you know, I become uh, momentarily aware, uh, after reading these kinds of things, I become momentarily aware that my life is unfolding in a dreamlike fashion. And I don't mean that in a qualitative sense. It's not like my life is a dream, like everything's a dream. And I'm living the dream. I mean that my life, my waking life, what I consider to be my capital L life, uh, is not real. <laughs> or, you know, it's like this mental fiction. And I become aware uh, I become aware of this after reading these books, and I linger in this state of awareness for a little while. It's like lucid dreaming, or what I imagine lucid dreaming to be. You know, being alive while being acutely aware that this is, you know, that this is all just a like fragmentary procession of thoughts and events that follows no predictable pattern and ultimately demonstrates absolutely no cohesiveness whatsoever. And, you know, any notions that I might have to the contrary are just an illusion. I'm just a congregation of cells. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on. Uh, I don't think any of us do. Do any of us have any idea what's going on? So uh, what's the answer? I wish I knew. Here's my thinking on the matter at this particular juncture. Let's just observe. Let's just take a moment to uh, look around and breathe. And uh, on occasion, eat something. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. 
It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today, once again, is Michael J. Seidlinger. Very nice to have him here. Uh, I really enjoyed talking with him, and I hope you enjoy uh, listening to me talking with him. So let's, uh, let's proceed, shall we? Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Michael J. Seidlinger, and his new novel, once again, is called The Laughter of Strangers. I said that weird. The Laughter... <laughs> His new novel is called The Laughter of Strangers. Oh, I'm uh, sitting in front of a computer in a room just uh, outside of D.C., Washington, D.C., Fairfax, Virginia, metropolitan area. Uh, same thing I do every day, staring at a computer, InDesign, social media. Yep. Constantly. That's so what, like, what are you doing? You plug in your authors? Because you, you run civil coping mechanisms. Oh, yeah. Uh, you're the, um, it's a mixture of that, man, yeah. All right. So you got your own book. You're a publisher. You're a book a book reviews editor for Electric Literature. Is there anything that I'm missing? Um, no. You got Electric Literature, Civil Coping Mechanisms, and I'm another one of those writers trying to do their best. You know, just see if far can they can take it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have this book uh, out, this new novel. Uh, is there anything? And this is not your first book. So I mean, is there anything different that you're doing this time around? Have you learned anything? Over the years, you know, rolling books out into the world, uh, have you honed like your your strategy? I think I'm actually starting to get the strategy. Definitely, yeah. With the laughter of strangers, uh, it's my first book with Lazy Fascist Press. I've got a number of books uh, tied in with them, but this one was uh, kind of like the the one that that kind of solidified what I like to do with the narrative form, which is kind of create this rolling kind of prose that's a little bit conversational, a little bit. Uh, a little bit of a monologue, but also just narratively focused while also being experimental. If you notice, like there are a lot of uh, headers and so forth, a little bit of a metaphysical tilt. Um, I've been always interested in that kind of deal with like uh, a mixture of the narrative inclined prose, but also with a little bit of uh, an interesting look to the prose. And I, I actually think this is my fifth book, by the way. I know you mentioned like this is definitely not your first. Yeah, it's uh, it's my fifth book. And it took a lot of other books that don't exist and never will exist to get to this point where I feel like I think I might be onto something in terms of like the visual and the the feel of the prose. Okay, so what do you mean about the visual? Like just the okay, layout? Okay, so yeah, like the layout. Like I've always been okay. For instance, like uh, I'll just I'll lay it out. Like I'm working on uh, pre-production for a book that I'm about to start writing on. Friday, actually. And one of the first things I do is I try to picture what it will look like on the page from the title page to just the way the prose sits like a, like the types a typesetter will always do that anyway. Like they'll look at the, the manuscript and they'll try to create some kind of visual uh, congruity with the actual contents of the prose. I do that from the start. I just can't help but not to. Why? Because, and, because um, of the work that you do as a publisher, like you do the typeset and the layout for the books that you publish? Exactly. I do everything pretty much, except for I get some content editing. I do the content editing, but I mean, I do some li- have some line editing uh, uh, work that's done by other editors that work with me. Right. But for the most part, yeah, I do. 
Okay, so that's, that's, all that. that seems new because I remember reading an interview with Don DeLillo and he was talking about how he types in like these big fonts and, uh, you know, like, like excessively big. And I, I hopefully I'm remembering this correctly, but it's because he considers writing prose and the look of the, of the actual ink and the words on the page as a kind of sculpture. So there's like a very visual component to how he strings sentences together and he like how the actual paragraphs look on the page matters greatly to him. And that makes sense to me. You know what I'm saying? Like, Oh yeah, definitely, man. Like, have you ever just like opened a book and you're skimming through it and you're deciding whether or not you want to keep with it and you see this long flowing paragraphs. And right. I, I don't think that's like a problem with the reader. It's just like our innate way. We're like, Oh fuck. You know, like, <laughs> no, I like, <laughs> there's nothing better than a little white space. And you know, you can see how yeah, the thing moves yeah. you can, you can get a sense of its narrative uh, propulsion or whatever. And, um, like to, to finish the point that I was making is that I think that in this new age of, um, you know, kind of the golden age of the indie press where it's easier than ever by a long, uh, a long way to, um, publish and to become a publisher and to get books out there into distribution channels. Um, you know, there are increasingly more and more writers who are learning how to do the stuff that we're talking about where you're actually, you know, yeah. doing the nuts and bolts work of book design, which you know, I, I haven't really talked about that on this show or thought about it um, explicitly, but, it, you know, it, the visual component that you're talking about comes into play in ways that might be unprecedented because you have experience doing the other parts of um, the publishing process that writers before us might not have been privy to or had any, you know, interest in. Oh, yeah, definitely. It adds another um, layer to, to writing. And it actually, I, th I think of it as something that's beneficial, like something that helps me. It's a crutch. Because I feel good when I know how it will look on the page. And as I start writing, uh, it starts showing up on the page how I expected it to show up. Yeah, that's a, that's a satisfying feeling. It's almost like a, yeah, like a crutch in a way. And uh, I'm seeing that just in general with the advent of, uh, as you said, in, indie publishing getting a little bit easier in terms of just the technology being able to put stuff out there. And um, everyone is being able to like just download uh, I don't know pages on a Mac or something like that and start getting getting more of a type a typographical uh, effect with their prose. It's it's great. It's it's also reassuring to see what's going to happen um, with novels and poetry and everything else uh, as people start to play with that. Okay, not so, just manuscript anymore, you know. Yeah. So what uh, what word processing software do you use? I'm standard. I'm Word, Word but okay. uh, I I use all I use the Adobe Creative Suite. Like right now, I'm staring at InDesign because I have a galley that I have to get going with a, another CCM book really soon. So like right when you called me, I was kind of just like setting up a little bit just to just to kind of get ahead of myself, just to like because I know this is coming up, but it's not yet ready. So I was like, all right, I got a couple minutes. I'm gonna throw in InDesign and see what's going on. But um, yeah, I got I use the t traditional methods. Nothing special. Um, but you know, how to, you, know how, you know how to use all this stuff. Yeah, um, took a while. Self taught. I just taught myself. Yeah. Self taught. Okay. Yeah. Are you? Are you? So you're kind of like technologically inclined. You're good at this kind of thing. Uh, I guess so. Um, it t I'm pretty good at picking up on things quickly. So, and it doesn't matter what you know, an instrument, uh, like music instruments, or a piece of software. Or like some some app or something. Yeah, it, it, I've always been good at that. So can you, I, wait, 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 was, wait. I was the only one. Hmm? Can you take things apart? Are you one of those people who can like take apart like a car? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I can take apart. This is what's weird about me. I can take apart abstract stuff, but I cannot take apart like 
mathematical formulas and stuff like that. Well, it's I was going to very strange. I was going to ask you, like, are you math brain? Because I feel like math. No, no, this is not, okay. not at all. I can't even like. This is how bad it is. Uh, I can't even. Um, do like a a, a a math problem, like a typical add add subtract thing that involves like say a, a number in the hundreds and a number like like fifty or something like that. You know, just like I can't do that stuff without writing it on paper. But I'm just I've always been really good at abstract stuff. I can like just conceptualize to the, the ends of like insanity. I can just keep on going and going. And you're and, I don't know. And you're musical. Uh, yeah, I used to be a musician before all this stuff, actually. Yeah, I'm looking failed, at your... Failed musician, but yeah, oh, musician. Right. It's better than not being a musician at all, right? I gave it a shot, man. <laughs> okay, so you played bass? Bass, guitar, um, and I did vocals. But the vocals that I say, like, you know, like I say I'm a vocalist, it's more like listen to a hardcore band, that kind of stuff. That's what I used to do. Were you screaming? Oh, yeah. Okay. Straight up, straight up fry screams, death growls, okay. all that stuff. There's actual there's actual names for that like death growl is a thing. Oh man, yeah, yeah. There's a whole <laughs> science to it, and it's great. It's for me. I always, even to this day, I have like this natural affinity with that that vocal style, just because I know how fun it is when you actually get into it. But then there's this fine line between doing it right and doing it wrong. And if you do it wrong, you fuck your vocal up. Vocals up forever. Like, oh really? Completely done. You mean you yeah, blow? You mean you blow your voice out? There. If you look at every single. Um, there's a single heavy metal band or whatever. There's usually a case where the vocalist, if they do any kind of that stuff, they will end up uh, getting uh, the vocal surgery where they have to, re- there are these things called polyps. Think like little warts or something on your throat that start forming because of that damage. They have to get them removed because it just feels like razor blades in your throat. Jesus. Yeah, but it, it's part of the it's part of the process. Everyone loves hearing that. Well, you know, people who like metal and all that. But, yeah, well, you know, and it's just not just metal because I remember like just the other day I was in the car or whatever, and I remember hearing like a Tom Petty song, and he does like these like grunts or like you know I don't even know what you. Oh hear, yeah. But it's like perfect. Yeah. You know, it's like how hard. Yeah. And I thought to myself, like, how hard did he work to get that to sound just right? Or is that like, is he just? Natural? I think I, I love Tom Waits, man. I think I think he like. I he said got Tom, his Tom voice. Petty. I said Tom Petty, but Tom, Tom Petty. Sorry, yeah. sorry, Waits. Yeah, I was saying I think Waits because he should growl. I was like, Whoa. Right. but yeah, Tom Petty, the same thing. Like in the same thing. The thing is, I feel like it's just like the voice, um, the throat, just just getting sort of like that that like you know they smoke and they, they did all that stuff and everything like that and it just kind of like gets a little bit gruff over time and like i think he just um he knows how to sing no matter what like he knows how to actually project and all that obviously so i think it's just like when you hear what that what he's doing with that it's a mixture of what he knows how to do in terms of a, a singer and then also just his, his throat has experienced the, the atrophy that you usually get from, from smoking or from drinking, from any, all that, and you kind of use it. And I said Tom Waits earlier. Um, I just, uh, I was, uh, I guess I thought you said Tom Waits, but like he is a perfect example of just that. Like his gruff voice is a result of a lot of like his lifestyle choices, and he accentuates that. It doesn't hurt his voice anymore just to be that low, that, uh, Raw. Well, yeah, I mean, and you know that I saw him recently. Did you listen to this? Oh, you show? did? Yeah, I, I, awesome. I was at a bookstore. He was in the bookstore, like, right, and he started talking to me. It was, it was <laughs> one of the highlights of my uh, Los Angeles existence. But, uh, you know, the thing, the thing about it with these guys, and I guess it makes perfect sense, is that, you know, they just, they're able to use their voice as an instrument in ways that uh, I cannot. <laughs> uh, it's, I, I envy it. I still do. I'll probably, like, die envying it. But, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, me too. Yeah. So, so okay, so you were a bass player in a band. I mean, you were doing death metal. Were you touring around? Or, like, what was the extent of um, your musical foray? So, 
I started out like anyone else starts out just doing garage band stuff, but then just my natural way, like I just I wanted to do more with it. Yeah, I was always a bassist first and foremost, playing in garage bands. Um always hardcore, metalcore, all that stuff. This is like the onset of like 1998, 99, something like that, maybe 2000. Um but I used to I used to be in Florida. I used to live in Florida, and in Florida, there's a lot of that. There are a lot of bands. There's a big scene. I don't know if it is now, but back in like early 2000s, there was a scene for this really heavy music. And I just lived around, like completely, just constantly went to every single show uh, and just hung around, lived lived in that scene. And um, as a result of that, I ended up in different uh, bands trying to make a go of it. When I mean that, I mean like just going the distance, getting signed, all that. And we toured around Florida, East Coast. Uh, for me, I only made it as far up to like close to Boston, like somewhere like in the in some basement show that's in Massachusetts. But like, uh, yeah, it, it, I tried to make over. I, I toured most of the East Coast. I haven't really got, we didn't really get far into the middle of the country or even overseas or anything like that. But yeah. But you know, you played um, some shows. Oh, yeah. It was, it was great. Good, good and bad scenarios, obviously, but um, well, I actually well, thought I actually thought I was going to be that. I thought I was just going to continue living in that kind of way. But we're talking like living out of a van and sleeping yep. on people's floors and that kind of yep. thing. What, were the, what was living the name? In, living what? living in the band practice space. Oh, like I mean, I always had like a uh, my parents have always been supportive, so I could go back to them and sleep in my room. But on nine nine times out of ten, I'd rather just be drunk off my ass, uh, <laughs> sleeping in the band space. So uh, are you, right. what was the name of the band? Uh, I've been a number of bands. Like see, like there was Lead Us to Light, <laughs> which was actually one of the better names that we came up with. There was a band that that my most successful band is called Stalin, actually, like Joseph Stalin. <laughs> And uh, that band got to the point where we had a developmental contract with Arista Records. Um, like we had, we had an agent that was like, like uh, uh, grooming us for that. I wouldn't say we had it, but we nearly had it. But then political, like you know, in the band itself started falling apart. Yeah. We had a couple of guys that were on drugs, and then the lead chief songwriter. I was the second songwriter, which means like I just work with him to write songs. Our, he was the vocalist slash lead guitarist, whatever. Um, he kind of let it get to his head the moment that became a possibility, the Arista thing, and it just fell apart. Um, and that's where actually that's that's where I decided, you know, I don't, I, I want to try something that's a little bit more solitary. I want to try something that I can actually control myself. Well, that was, a, uh, was just what I was going to say is that like you know, creative collaboration is intense. Like, uh, I think oh, that's yeah. why a lot of us who wind up in books are 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 here. It's because we don't want to work with people. <laughs> Uh, at least not create at least not creatively because you know you you have to seed control like i think about filmmaking which i think is uh is or at least has been the dominant narrative form of uh contemporary time certainly my lifetime oh yeah and man. you think about is, like but... all the money and all the people and all the bullshit that goes into getting a movie made it is a miracle to me that a that a great movie has ever been made because of precisely because of that and i'm talking you know, I, I think it almost seems like logically in my mind more likely that like some really low budget up by the bootstraps indie film would be great uh, as opposed to some like, you know, uh, extremely well financed corporate, you know, big budget picture. Uh, because on that side of it, you've just got so many hands in the cookie jar. Like how does how does any kind of vision emerge from that? And yet sometimes it does. So 
exactly. Anyhow, you know, it's it's you have to have a certain temperament and a certain willingness to uh, to tolerate that aspect of it. And it sounds like you know, in the musical realm, it's similar. And you know, and then mm-hmm. like a, a little bit of success starts to become uh, potentially possible. And then like the egos, and that's a classic story, right? Where the band, like the, oh, yeah. the lead singer gets a big head and you know like yep yep <laughs> i mean my god so what happened were there like knockdown drag out fights or was it just kind of a fizzling uh no it was pretty immediate within two weeks uh like every day every single day we'd end up in a studio in tampa florida um this is obviously all happening in florida like i said um and we'd be recording songs, trying to figure it out, trying to create some kind of EP. So what happens is, uh, just to lay it out, like you do a number of demo EPs and things like that that only the um, uh, uh, executives, the labels here, like the label executives here, and uh, that, that, that's what we were doing. And, like these songs probably would have never actually happened if we got signed. Like we'd maybe take one or two, but we were doing that, and we we're in the midst of that, and there's just a lot of doubt i think he the vocalist that kind of like started the thing uh he kind of got it uh, he started blaming us for his vocal inabilities like he he i knew that he wasn't performing the way he wanted to he was kind of hoarse a little bit and then he just kind of like started letting it like he started laying in on us just blaming us for it and then uh some of us had short fuses and then one, the drummer just left. He's like, you know, just not, I've had enough of this. This is not worth it. Just day in, day out of us complaining. And, um, and then I just, I stayed to like the, the last, last like couple days just trying to make it work. But it was true that like he just wasn't ready as a vocalist mentally and, and vocally he was a little bit, yeah, he, he just, he wasn't doing it right. He, he was doing a lot of the aggressive stuff too. And he was kind of just blowing his vocals out. And then, I remember I um, had to get someone to pick me up from Tampa because, like, he had driven uh, the vocals had driven us all the way down there because I just completely gave up on it. I was like, you know, this is it. I can't. I can't do this anymore. I can't just be like a a, a mox uh, like a armchair psychologist or something like that or psychiatrist <laughs> or whatever for the guy. Right. That's what it felt like towards the end. I was just sitting in the the vocal booth with him, and all we were doing, all I was doing, was just like trying to get him to just try another track, try it again. So what if it's the the thirtieth or fiftieth uh, take? You do hundreds of takes of uh, recording takes. Um, and then I just kind of like, we had a smoke break and then I was just like, done. That's it. That's it. I mean, and what did you do? do Would you like walk out and just like start? I walked out, I walked down the road to wherever, like an, I think it was a gas station or whatever. And I called like at that time, like one of the few other trusted friends I had and he just picked me up. That was it. End of the band. Yeah. End of the band. Wow. It's And you know what? It seems like to me when you think about like rock bands, uh, that, really go the distance and become these huge stadium act, which, you know, which is fewer and farther between, uh, nowadays. But, um, there always seems to be like at the, in the lead singer, uh, a kind of glow or Messiah complex and like, or maybe, maybe both like, and what I'm saying, it's not necessarily all of all a denigration. Like, I think that there actually is kind of a spiritual strength or they're tapping into something that people respond to, and then I oh, also yeah. I also think they have like you know massive uh, egos that are that are like you know like messiah complexes almost like I think of like Bono like he wants to save the world and um, yeah yeah Bono right Bono's like the guy yeah <laughs> to, yeah, to, yeah but he's, I, 
but it's not yeah. it's not necessarily all bad because I think like his impulses are good. I think it comes from mm-hmm. uh, a good place, and you know I'm sure. And, but he's very charismatic, and they've got you know you've got that in these lead singers. And uh, what I'm wondering, I think, is like maybe you know I guess maybe you have to have that. Like oh, how- you do, man. I I, I I remember I told you I was a like vocalist or whatever for another band that didn't actually really have a name. We kept on changing our name. It only I only did like five or six shows, but I was the vocalist for that, and I was doing all the. Uh, I would call them aggressive vocals for that. Uh, and yeah, to, to do that, to be like literally on stage, the guy right in front of the audience, you, I won't even say it's, it's like confidence, but to do that day and out, you have to create this facility for it where you're creating a, a, either your own identity, which you just abide by, or like a separate identity that just like projects this, 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 sellable or like something that's, that you can sell something that can work something that can really pre- just move the crowd you have to be a character on stage right um to make that work and like i do think that like as you were saying like yeah, bono is one of the greatest like yeah i mean i don't like his music i don't like you too but i mean i will and i don't like how like he got flag- flagrantly does like all the philanthropy and all that but that's from a good place i i'm sure but like he has created his own i think identity for that like it may not be his own identity but but something that he abides by a separate identity a second identity and he had to do that in order to survive all this because like okay just think about anxiety or anything in general you just how do you do that day in day out to like from big clubs to, to the theaters to all that you know stadiums, theaters? stadiums and yeah like, man yeah. how do you do that how do you do that yeah. without just like creating this separate mode that you just abide by that you you're basically performing, you know, you have to perform and you perform under that identity and to create that identity, maybe it causes some problems. Maybe it causes some of that like dissonance or whatever that, that may make you a little bit egotistical or whatever, or you get full of yourself. I mean, I'm sure it could, it could fuck with your head if you're going on stage in front of a stadium crowd and people are just going nuts for you. you know? <laughs> oh yeah. I Imagine mean, that, man. I wish, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's try to like, uh, draw this back into the literary realm and draw a parallel. Yeah. Because- I think yeah. I think that there's an interesting conversation to be had about this because uh, if our little theory holds true, if what we're postulating has some uh, credence to it, then mm-hmm. you know if you think about uh, authors who uh, ascend into that you know very top realm uh, of the culture and sustain themselves over uh, long careers, you know by being really productive, but also by somehow keeping themselves in the cultural conversation. You right. know, by virtue of their work or by virtue of uh, a combination of their work and how they you know, manage their public image or whatever the hell it is, um, do you think that there's a corollary? Like what, what, would, what would the literary equivalent of the successful lead singer be? <laughs> I actually think there is a corollary with anything that involves public image. Um, you see the George Saunders or the Jonathan Franzens, and and uh, they do the same thing. Like not 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 to that degree, obviously, but they become they they note why they are in the spotlight, and they accentuate that because that's what you are told to do, or what has been proven to be successful in terms of marketing and 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 publicity. Um, I don't think it has the same effect because you don't have to do it day in day out like a, a musician or or even like a director or like an actor doing all like doing the junkets or whatever they have with the, the different interviews and stuff they do. But um, yeah, there's a corollary, man. There's definitely a corollary. Well, that you realize that you're like, you have to kind of present yourself as something that is not only selling the book, 
but like you wrote the book and like you're kind of like the authority of that book and like people need to buy you before they buy the book you know well, what I mean? well yeah i mean it's, and it's interesting that you said franzen and saunders because i think they're very different um, oh yeah, yeah. You know, like, yeah. Like, I was just like, thinking of like big guys that just yeah, yeah. Like, but but yeah. vastly different, but also you know very uh, popular, and they also have a lot of critical acclaim and whatnot. But Franzen is an interesting case because you know he's this guy who uh, doesn't want anything to do with a lot of the uh, current literary ecosystem online right. and whatnot, social media, all the ways in which a lot of the indie authors and or just most authors, you know, not even just indie, but most authors, you know, that's a lot of the water that we swim in, um, both by choice and also by necessity. So um, he's kind of become this curmudgeon, uh, and, you know, and obviously he can really write, uh, you know, not, not everybody loves his stuff, but he's, you know, I, I would have a hard time arguing that the guy can't write. He's like the classic writer, you know, he's like one of the last, like, true, like, what we remember from, like, the, I don't know, 60s, I don't want to, I don't even want to say, like, a, I'm bad with dates like that, but yeah, Jonathan Franzen's the guy that, that writers could be back when, apparently, you made more money or something, <laughs> writing a book or whatever, but, like, yeah, he completely isolates himself when he writes a book, and he doesn't need to be on social media, doesn't need to do all certain things, he gets to choose, you know, like, well, yeah, he, he's in a very, he's in very rare area. He's a very privileged writer. But um, yeah, what yeah, I think, yeah. what I think is fascinating about him, and what I would be interested to ask him if I ever get a chance to talk to him, is like, like I, there's something very savvy about like the bombs that he throws because, you know, he'll go out and he'll publish this thing on some you know newspaper's website or whatever where he's bashing Twitter or, and then what happens is that he blows up on Twitter. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> he completely dominates the literary conversation, and I wonder. Oh yeah. Like, is that just an accident, uh, you know, where he's just like, I can't believe no, it? No, he's no. No, it's not, man. You think he knows? It's not. No, I, know, I think he knows. Because, like, think about it. Like, if you're, like, at that level where you act kind of when, when your publisher or even you can afford to pay for a publicist, maybe it was an accident, but he'll cover up later as being something that's intentional. Because, like, negativity, it doesn't matter if it's negative or positive. It will float uh, in terms of publicity. You can do anything. And it will get attention because that's all it is. It's attention when it comes to this stuff nowadays, especially nowadays. Like back then, you know, you have to – you have to – back then meaning like 90s, I don't know, even prior to that. Like you only have so many plot, so many channels of publicity, but now you have online that can be anything. I, I, I truly believe that, that um, any kind of publicity, publicity is publicity and it's all about making it something that's – interesting to the person that's listening to it well yeah but I, and you know like with friends and he's become such a lightning rod and he's got so much mainstream media yeah. exposure that like anything he says is going to make news but um for for the great majority of writers like you could like strip nude and like you know like light your hair on fire and like make like, <laughs> make a vine of it or whatever and you know people are just going to yawn like it, it, it like it's yeah. a, it's a puzzle to me and i think it's a puzzle to a lot of writers uh and people who are creative you know and trying to get mm -hmm. the word out about their stuff somehow like how do you make uh how do you how do you become sticky you know and obviously quality is paramount it has to start with the work being um you know quote unquote good or good to the people to whom it's good for or whatever but uh, you know some writers just have a knack and some artists just have a knack for stickiness and i don't know if there's necessarily a way to uh you know, clearly parse that. There seems to be some mystery around that. Otherwise, everybody would be doing it. 
I feel like there's someone out there that is probably academia or something like that that's trying to figure out like a formula for this. Well, there was just an there was just an article in the New Yorker this morning that I was reading where some guy literally went through like seven thousand lists of the most emailed posts on the New York Times and tried to parse the posts to figure out Whoa. what made them viral. And you know, it's a lot of did he it's a lot of did this, he come up with anything? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I it, the article wasn't convincing enough or like interesting enough to me to be able to even like paraphrase it. Like it didn't stick to me. <laughs> mm-hmm, but yeah. you know, it's a lot of the BuzzFeed and Upworthy stuff with the lists and like positivity over negativity, unless the negativity is like supercharged and you know, and fear inducing or, uh, you know, exactly. you know, I have something to, to, yeah. So like with that Buzzfeed and just like that concept of, of not even thinking about quality of the uh, information, the content. Okay. Everyone's a content producer these days. So it's like, that's one thing that I'm thinking about now recently, very recently. It's just like you know, the stuff that tends to trend is stuff that has no redeeming value. It's just something that's click worthy. It's like clickbait. It's something that, that, is interesting just from reading, like skimming the screen, and then and then you click on it and you flip through. You're like, okay, yeah, obviously it's a bunch of macros and whatever. It's a it's another list in terms of Buzzfeed, for instance. It's just like that's what's fascinating to me is how like the stuff like that gets so many hits and makes it does make you know money in its own way and it be its own business model. Uh, but there's like an absence of anything, any kind of quality. It's yeah, it, it yeah. doesn't, not even saying anything, man. It's just saying, you know, here's a bunch of macros that are funny. And then you sit at the end, you're like, I feel like I just ate a Mc, some McDonald's or something like that. Right. I feel like I haven't done anything. No, know? I ran, I, I ranted about this, you know, like, uh, you know, I don't begrudge anybody for trying to make a living. I know how hard it yeah, is, yeah. especially in the online environment, but I don't know, man. I just want, uh, I want some quality. And and like in the same breath, I should say that it's frustrating doing a podcast that because I was just reading yesterday that in this, you know, in this uh, viral, uh, in this pursuit of viralness or whatever, uh, mm-hmm. the one kind of content that almost never goes like super viral online is audio content. Um, uh. <laughs> but for, for much that for like, you know, cause video content of like cats, like, you know, yawning or whatever, that stuff is quick and easily digestible and people stick it on their Facebook wall and there's likes and all that kind of stuff. Right. But, you know, I think that audio content, particularly like long form audio content like this, where two people are talking in depth or whatever, um, for an hour, you know, doesn't necessarily lend itself to an easy share in much the same way that like a really, uh, deeply considered long form essay or short story or whatever does you know what i'm saying true oh no i totally man i totally agree man yeah it it, it's it's a hard sell but i mean i I have nothing to say to that other than yeah i agree (laughs) i really do agree it's it's frustrating because like if you try to make quality it becomes harder for it to go viral and so you know if you want to create and like it creates this like this uh you, the thing about it is that like that currency is real for most people. Like that click through mm-hmm. and like those Facebook likes, that shit means something to people, and people want that badly, including people who purport to be uh, deep thinking literary folk. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, oh yeah. Um, so it's like it's like the uh, it's like a lure, you know? It's like this shiny object that people go chasing after, and it's just uh, it sort of depresses me. It's like, what are we doing? Here? <laughs> you know, what's the what's the what's the actual objective here? I think it depresses pretty much everyone that has any kind of like awareness of it. And, you know, like myself included and both of us included, it's just like, we, we realize what we're doing, but then sometimes you can't help but click anyway. And then you're like, yeah, I should Why? say I should say, too, I should say too that like I'm uh, I'm like uh, if there's a listicle in my Twitter feed, like uh, it's hard for me to resist. 
Yep, yep. I mean, like, I'm just like, oh, why am I clicking this BuzzFeed? But I am. And I just did. And guess what? I keep on scrolling. Uh, sh- right. Those motherfuckers, yeah. they have their algorithm. Yeah. Yep, they got me. They already got the click. They already got it. <laughs> so, got like, it. I might as well just look through it. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, so... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you finished, the, uh, you finished the, the musical career in Tampa, Florida, which seems like a good city for a musical career to implode. Birth somehow. of Death Metal. Yeah. Birth of Death Metal. Yeah. Oh, really? Is it? Yeah. Um, I don't know who the first band was. I think it's Death. I think literally the band the name was Death. But, like, Tampa, Florida, Tampa, Florida is the city for death metal. Like, Cannibal Corpse, which is one of the most popular death metal bands of all time, they how, they are from Tampa, Florida. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm, we were death metal. We were more like, uh, I don't know, like, the the popular version of the, the metal stuff. But okay. Yeah, but, yeah, but I, I had all that. I had all that, but okay, yeah. Okay, so but one more question about uh, music, because just because I'm mm-hmm. curious. But, like... You know, a lot of guys, like one of the primary reasons they get into music is because they want to meet women. It's easy for musicians to meet women, it's, you know, yeah. theoretically. Uh, but it's not, it's not theoretically, man. It is. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> so you're playing death metal? Like, uh, what kind of women are attracted to the death metal scene? Okay. So I don't want to typecast it, but like, let's go start with Suicide Girls and people who are on Suicide Girls. Like those types of girls. Yeah, I mean, that's just like the extreme of what people are, sh- like the type of females that are showing up at the show. But like, so of that, heavily, you'd, be, like, you'd be surprised, man. You'd be surprised. There'd be like a, like a, a brunette or a blonde that's completely like innocent that's at the show just because they're fascinated by yeah. the style of music. You're dangerous. Yeah. You're, the, you're the bad boy or whatever. Yeah, that's what it is. That's what it's always been, man. From punk to metal, it's always been that. And I, I wouldn't, I would be lying if I said that it wasn't, those one that was not one of the perks for for any kind of musician getting into that that particular genre sure we like the music itself that's primary but then there's also those benefits like that yeah yeah you have something to talk about there's something powerful about being able to play an instrument and the singing and everything but <laughs> being on stage like that and yeah. just like not only just singing you're 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 flat out creating these mosh pits that are are uh controlled it's it's controlled chaos yeah, so, and it's all yeah. at your fingertips, essentially. Yeah, especially the vocalist. Again, we go back to the vocalist thing we talked about earlier. Like the guy can control that. He'll tell them when to do it. He'll tell them when to stop. He'll tell them when to keep on going. That's powerful. Sure, you're like a dictator. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Women love dictators. Um, okay, <laughs> so so you leave Tampa. How do you get into the literary game? Like, what what's the, um, what does that transition look like? So, like the transition was pretty incidental. Uh, what happened was, yeah, I left Florida, ended up in, um, actually, I was still in Florida when I actually got into all this, but the way to go about this is just, yeah, I was in, I ended up back in college after the fallout with music and How old were you? So How forth. old were you when this was happening? I'm bad with numbers, man, but um, I think I was like 20. Okay, okay, so you were young. So like, yeah, I was young, and I, I, in between all this, I had a stint where I was boxing, too. Um, and that's where I got the the idea for laughter of strangers. Okay, but um, okay, like, but what weight class? Bantam weight, which okay. is like one thirty. Okay, so you're t- you're not because I'm looking at your headshot. You don't look like a huge like burly. Dude. No, I'm like five six. I'm I'm small. I got some Asian blood in me, so I'm a small guy. Okay, but you can but you can throw a punch. You're not afraid to. I mean that's. Um, yeah, I've got a, I've got a pretty good left straight not like a hook or an uppercut well I, any uppercut hurts but yeah i've got a i've got a decent left yeah okay okay are you left-handed i guess that would be yes, yeah yeah so, okay i'm left i'm right. like semi-ambidextrous like certain things i'll do right certain things i'll do left 
Yeah, I'm that way too. Like I always, uh, I dribbled about, you know, from Indiana. I dribbled a basketball right-handed, mm-hmm. but I shot it left-handed for some unknown reason. So. I think we're in a good place, man, because we have both both uh, sides somewhat reasonable, and that's what's important, I think. Yeah. So, okay, boxing. What what led you into that sport? Um, you know, that's a good question because, like, late, recently I did not have an answer for that, but uh, I really do think it's because I like the the. I was in a, a situation where I was working at a boxing gym anyway, um, and I had friends that were were training, and it was easy to get into it. And I think what led me actually into boxing training was the fact that I just wanted to be in a situation where I could get the beat. To get just completely to beat the shit out of, you know, like just complete danger. I, I like the idea <laughs> of danger. I liked the idea of walking to the ring and just like everything going, everything fading to black, waking up and realizing I have like a big welt on my face. I think it was that. I think it's just like, I, I don't know. I've always been rebellious to begin with, like just, just kind of like pushing in, against the grain. Did you get in fights? Like, did you get in fights as a kid? Uh, nah, man. I was, I was a pretty like civil kid, but I was always, I was always slightly off in the sense that like, yeah, I didn't have any problems socially or even with, uh, and, and you said uh, your parents, your parents were supportive. So you come from like a stable. Oh home. yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm so, I'm super privileged with that. My sister, I only have one, one other sibling. She's an older sister. Um, and my, my parents and even my relatives, they're all, they're all really supportive of everything I do, which is uh, like, for me, is really grateful. And where, where, where are you from? Are you like, are you from the East coast? I actually started in Springfield, Virginia. Like I grew up in Springfield, Virginia, and then I moved to Florida and then I moved up recently, like in 2012 back here to, um, Fairfax, Virginia for a grad program in, at, a. George Washington University. It's a, a master's of business program, and I, I took a track in publishing. Interesting. Um, yeah, but that then seems, like that seems like a responsible like uh, I don't know. I feel like a lot of people in in the book world wouldn't think to do that. <laughs> uh, I don't know, man. I mean, like for me, it's a mixture of just like opportunities and just trying to make sense of what's what the hell's going on. Yeah. And like I, I think I feel like I'm the kind of guy who has a mixture, has a per, like hopefully a perfect balance between reckless, stupid decisions and then good, <laughs> responsible decisions. Right. I hear that. But uh, I feel similarly, yeah. you know. But I feel. <laughs> are you getting something from this uh, master's in business program? Are you are you learning things about? The business of publishing that you might not have, yeah. you know, you might- yeah, not not to the point where like I feel validated, but yeah, I mean, okay. Then again, I I we didn't never got to the whole point of like why I got into literature, but I've never been into any kind of structured learning scenario. I was the kid that always lashed out at the teacher. I was the kid that always like found loopholes in the curriculum to get an A or whatever. Um, and that continues even now. It's just like I, I, I don't see like actual traditional structured learning as beneficial. I like the hands-on. I like the uh, experiential. Altern- yeah, yeah. I like that kind of learning. So like, I mean, I've never, never hated on the teacher or anything like that. But like, I were you? Good, did you get good grades? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course you did. Okay. So, uh, and your parents? Like, what are your parents? Creative folk? No, my dad. Um, He's big into like baseball, and um, he actually worked for the Library of Congress for the majority of his his career. Um, and then my mom is a nurse. Okay. Okay. So like more left sided kind of stuff. I'm I'm the anomaly in the family. I am. Even too. my sister. My sister's an accountant. 
Yeah, Jesus. so like, like it's kind of like what happened to Michael, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they say that about me and my family. I hear you. <laughs> um, like what the hell happened? <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. I wish I knew. It would be so much easier in life if I just fit into some, uh, you know, very, uh, you know, easy linear career path or whatever. But this yeah, is... but would you be happy? No, so and like this I mean, is like... this is the thing too is that like part of the part of what fucks you as a writer is that your whole life. Or most for most of us, you get encouraged artistically, or you know, uh, from a writing perspective. And people tell you mm-hmm. you should do this, and you listen to them. <laughs> and yeah, then, and then yeah. you then you get off the you know at the, at the end of the plank, and you and you leap, and then it's like, all right, you know, like are you making money? You know, how's it going? You shouldn't have done that. You should have done something different. <laughs> um, yeah, it's like it's like what do you think? Do you think literature is going to give you the kind of dollars that you used to? Do? No, it's not going to. But then again, people are still running off like the the, the tradition of it, like the traditional model that the way it was or like you just make the, you write the american the great american novel and it'll be great yeah yeah yeah. well yeah people have these kind of like and it's like they think of like john grisham or i can't mm-hmm. tell you, i can't tell you how many of my relatives have been like you got to write a book like that john grisham <laughs> and, yeah you know, i get no, that a lot nothing yeah. against john grisham but i mean like you know I, you sort of have a, a sense of your own sensibility um to get jane austeny uh, but you know I, you have an understanding of what your own uh, artistic leanings are and the kind of work that you make. And I think if mm-hmm. if I'm being honest about my own work, I think that it's a long shot that the kind of art that I would make would find a wide audience. And right, uh, right. That, that's not to say that it can't happen or that it won't happen, but like I have to wonder that about myself. And, I, and the reason I wonder that about myself primarily is, is not necessarily... Huh, I mean, maybe, I, maybe I'm misreading it, but the kind of books that I like um, to read... You know, like I don't read a lot mm-hmm. of popular fiction and I like weird. Neither do I, man. I like weird. I. I like weird kind of left of center, avant-garde type stuff. And that's not to say that I can't like really enjoy a book that winds up becoming a bestseller and, and like some sort of like runaway hit or something. But um, I don't know. You know, it just makes me wonder like where does this fit and like what can I realistically expect from yeah. my particular makeup? Yeah, yeah. I actually wondered about that a lot in a sense. Since I'm like invested in independent literature, I love the community that's going on and uh, so forth. I I would say like there's maybe like a max of 300, 400 people that like operate within that community. But then again, I start to wonder, literature that we consider contemporary classics these days, weren't they somewhat based in a, a community of that sort anyway. Right. Like, well, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, it's just like literature has never, literature almost goes against the grain from the default. It has never fit into the the standard modes of society. So like, yeah, it doesn't make money. I mean, maybe if you write like a, a book that somehow sells like Catcher in the Rye or something, like sells right. like crazy. Right. Yeah, you, you'll be like a lucky person like that. Or like the Other than that, you're kind of like, you're you're giving into this 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 idea or this this just um this natural interest that a lot of people share like well not a lot of people like 300 400 people share and you're doing it because you like the craft of it like for me that's what i'm talking about myself here like i love writing i do i i i con i constantly do it i can't not do it uh, it's like obsessive if if it were a drug i would be completely addicted to it so know? how many how many words a day do you get i mean like roughly like you know what i'm saying like what's, uh, what is your, what is your work I, schedule look like yeah okay so my work schedule with writing i don't sleep until i hit 2000 that's it like i, I cannot sleep until i hit 2000 so that's at least 2000 words a day but i've been managing 2500 to 4000 words a day you type a 
Like personality? Type A, like personality? Yeah. I don't know, man. I don't know about those type A, type B, stuff like that. I, I don't, don't know. know. I mean, but you, you, you won't sleep until you hit 2,500 words. That seems pretty hardcore. Seven days a week? Yeah, no, I don't, I don't make any concessions. Yeah, I could, it could be Christmas Day, and I'll wake up, figure out how the day is progressing, and then I'll find three to four hours in that day. Even if it means that towards the end of the day where, where, I'm, where everyone else is asleep, I'll still be awake. Like in the last night, I was up until 3.40-something because I'm planning the next novel, as I said earlier in the, uh, our discussion. And I, 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 I wouldn't say a breakthrough or anything like that, but I realized something about what I was creating was wrong, and I went back into my notes and completely undid it and, and fixed it. And that ended up being like 3.40-something, and I woke up like at 9. Okay, so like, okay. Yeah. So you're into this, and you're disciplined. Um, if, you're, if you're holding yourself to 2,000 words a day, um, like how many days a week are those 2000 words, a steaming pile of shit, <laughs> not to be, so, not to be too hardcore about it, but sometimes I've worked on word counts before that helps me because it makes me accountable to myself and it it's gives, important, man. Yeah, it's important. It, it makes yeah. it, makes it quantifiable and you can like actually track your progress. So I get that. Yeah. But, but like, sometimes I feel like, you know, just like the, the, the good feeling of having reached your prescribed word count for the day. Um, mm-hmm. can sometimes overrule, like sometimes you'll, you'll like push yourself to get those words and the quality of the words might not be there. That's not to say it's not a worthy exercise because just the act of writing the words is I think a victory it's in and very, of itself. Yeah. But you know, do you like, how, how do you, um, how so, do you think of that? Okay. So like, yeah, I used to fall into that, that gap where I would like write 2000 words and then go back to it and it's bullshit. So, like, I think it was towards the beginning or middle of 2012 where I started to realize that issue. Um, as a result, so what I'll do is the process with it is I'll write a page or two, then I'll stop. I'll go to Facebook, email, or something, and spend about five to ten minutes just completely uh, stepping away from what I'm writing and think about something else. Um, and then I'll go back to it and completely content edit the sh- the, st- the shit out of it, you know, just like completely go through it and see, try to figure out what I was doing there. And I'll do that in, in repetitions of who knows up to a dozen over the course of the day until I get the 2000. So in that way, I've been able to, at least honestly, in my own part, like more or less, maybe 90% accuracy, uh, uh, not have to just write and then completely edit everything all over again because i've never been good about just writing the whole thing the whole draft and then editing the whole draft and then writing the whole draft a second draft and then doing a third draft fourth draft yeah i don't know i, how, usually, I don't know how people do that like when you like they just like it write, hurts yeah it hurts to yeah. write so to write some big shitty first draft and then to go back yeah. with this big huge stack of page like i'm a person i don't like, think it's feasible man i don't i mean i think it like in order to get the spontaneity that you see in like like my personal idols and stuff like that, all the writers that do that, like like the, the writing that just punches you in the face, it, it feels like you lose that as you do draft after draft. So what I do is I just do two pages by two pages. Like so, when I'm at fifty page mark, I know I'm at the fifty page mark because I've edited so edited so much and learned so much from those fifty pages to go to the next fifty pages, and the you know onward and onward until I get like a thirty a three hundred page manuscript or something yeah you know it's interesting to hear you say that about um how like the draft after draft process even though you might be refining the prose from like a a quote-unquote literary standpoint into something that really shines like i feel the same way i feel like if i'm reading writing that feels it feels overwrought to me it's like too polished like i like i like to read something and like the, the writing that i respond to 
and I, you know, forgive me if I'm not defining this as clearly as I, I, I mm-hmm. could, but uh, like the way that I've been thinking of it lately anyway, is that it carries with it the same power that I hear when someone is speaking to me with like yeah. real integrity. It's yeah. got the, it's got the yeah. power of like the spoken word. And it's like, this person is talking to me. They're not writing at me. I don't, exactly. I don't want prose stylists. I want someone to fucking talk to me, you know, like, mm-hmm. and I want that to be intelligent and I want it to be well delivered. But I think that there's an energy issue. And I think that like when you go draft after draft, after draft, after draft, unless you're either really fucking good or really lucky, the energy in the language dissipates. It dissipates, man. I tell you, time, like it's so almost always, it dissipates. And like my favorite authors, contemporary and classic, they all kind of inherit uh, inherited this kind of like idea that you write, but as you write, you content edit because content editing is king. Sure, line editing, you know, typos, and all that, whatever. That that you have an editor for that, and like you know, you're also your own personal editor. But you're right about that. True and true, and I couldn't agree more. In the sense that the atmosphere of what you're writing. When I say that, I mean just like the feel of line after line as it builds and like creates that image in your head. It it kind of gets a little bit smaller, a little bit harder to dissect when you're on your 12th or 15th draft and you've completely written something and then cut it down, written something and cut it down. I almost uh, everything every writer that I read that I love for the most part hasn't done that. They don't do that. They 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 basically write as they go. But then they also content as they go. They they try to figure out where they're going before it gets. Before it gets what? To uh, sorry about that. It was like an incoming call. Yeah, <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. Yeah. Before it gets too. Uh, what, yeah, just... yeah, yeah. So it gets it gets too unwieldy. Yeah, I said just like too. Too hard. Uh, that's why that's my one of my biggest fear fears as an editor is I don't like having to deal with three hundred pages of, I don't know, you know stuff that could be good, stuff that could be bad. That is the most daunting thing ever. That's enough to just like step away from the computer or whatever you're using and just walk to the bar or something. Cause like, you're just like, Oh God, I, I can't even, I can't even begin. I don't, I, I knew from the start that I'm not that kind of person. So that's why I do the two to three, no more than three pages content editing. Cause I need to know where I'm going. And define, define, define content editing. Content editing is, I mean, obviously you're, um, you're, are you going through the language and you're tweaking sentences yes. as you go, but you're yeah. also, you're also like thinking uh, big picture structurally about what the book is. Exactly. So like, here's how I do it. Like, um, all right. Picture like a typical MacBook pro or whatever I've got on the right hand side. I've got what I'm writing. And on the left hand side, I have my notes document. This is all word. Um, on the left hand side, I have typically, the, every single key main narrative uh, 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 point, things I have to hit to to progress the narrative, and then within those I'll like have like subsections, like an outline, a typical outline format where it's like one and then A, B, C, whatever. Um, I'll have like things I'll add in as I go, like make note of this character that somehow came to pass, some character that I didn't expect. Just birthed itself as I was writing, I'll add it, I'll add that in. And then on the right hand side I have my actual prose. Every two to three pages I'll go through and and, I'll, and figure out what the what I actually written in terms of a scene, how it flows. I'll edit how it flows line by line, just like yeah, the the language, what's happening, who said what. Sometimes like the dialogue is a little contrived, so I'll change that. Um I just completely go at it, just completely chop at it. Um, at a three to like a two to three page um, um, level, 
and then I compare it to what the broad strokes are on my left-hand side of the screen, which is like the, the notes that I have. I create an outline that I have so I can keep going, so I know where I'm going, because it really helps. I really do feel it helps to know narratively where you're going, so you don't have that kind of like weird uncertainty that you're just like rambling onward. Okay, okay. So let me stop you here, because if you're working in two to three page chunks, and I get that you have this kind of outline off to the left on your, you know, the left side of your screen that yeah, you're, you're yeah. using as like uh, your blueprint or whatever for the bigger picture. Um, mm-hmm. But if you're trying to avoid the trap of making your writing feel overwrought, um, right. when you finish a day's work and then you get up the next day to start working again on the next two to three pages, do you reread the pages that you did yesterday? No. You don't. No, I, you resist no. that. Because that's what I that's, resist it. That, yeah. fucks, that fucks with me because I'll sit down to write the next day. <laughs> And then I'll be like, oh, yeah. I got to change this. I got to tweak this. And then also I'll wind up being like, oh, I just fucked it up or I don't like this anymore. You know, you have to just keep it. Used, I forward. used to be the same way, man. I, I would I would look at what I had done. And then if I'm in a little like analytical mood, I would hate every single line that I'd written. But that you're not thinking the right way. So you don't trust that. So I just pushed it aside and realized what I'd done the previous day. Uh, and when I said, okay, I'm good enough to just go ahead and sleep or whatever, I've, I've had a good day in terms of writing, uh, trust that, and then you just let that go, and then you continue onward. Um, and I just do that for the course of an entire novel, because if you don't, if you keep on going back, there's a tendency to just completely undo everything you've done, and you just keep on doing it. You, like, just wanna, just, you wanna pick that scab or pull that string, yep, or whatever metaphor yep. you wanna use. Exactly, oh. you just keep on going, and then you never make any progress. It's just like the same thing with like, planning something like people seem to think that generally speaking like an author or whatever would seem to think sometimes that you have to have every single like major being figured out and you have like a whole big huge thing of cards or like a big huge notes note like a big huge long note document or something like that full of everything that needs to happen um i don't remember who i read but i read some interview by some uh i think it might have been neil gaiman actually um, that kind of like finally is that, made is it. That, is, that, is that how you pronounce his name, Neil Gaiman, or is it Neil Gaiman? I think, I think it's Gaiman, but I could be wrong. <laughs> which, which almost but, sounds like Neil Diamond, which is kind of cool, but go ahead. Uh, yeah, yeah, but like he, I, th- I don't know if it was him, but uh, the, what I'm getting at is like, so I, had this, uh, like I had this inclination that I knew that uh, a lot of pe- other people had, um, and then I read a popular interview by, I think it's Neil, um, that said something about how you don't ever know what you're going to ever write. You just have to create the broad, like the the the, the broad strokes. If you're thinking painting, like you create the outline and then you run with the outline because you're going to surprise yourself. You're going to end up writing stuff that you didn't expect, and you have to be prepared for that in the long run, like the broad term in terms of like broad strokes, as you said. But you also have to create room for it too. Like if, for instance, a character that you expected to live to like act to, I'm just creating something random here, ends up dying in like the be like the sixth scene or something in your novel, and you're like, oh, I didn't expect that. But then you just you're you'll be able to groove off that, be able to live off that if you have enough room where you have to conceptualize as you go anyway. And that's what I learned. Like, I know how many novels I went in a lot, but like I read, like I said, I read that review or interview. I think it was Neil Gaiman, like I said, um, and so it says something like that. Like you can't, com- you don't spend too much time pre 
pre-producing your, your novel, don't spend too much time writing notes for it because you're going to end up going against those notes no matter what. So create the broad strokes, the big key scenes that you want and what you want to do in terms of the concept, and then you go with it because you're going to end up changing and fighting yourself anyway because right. you have to keep – you have to fight your you're going, you, know, you know what it is, I think? I think it's like you fight what you've created naturally because you want to stay interested because like I get I get so bored of everything so quickly so I constantly change the stuff that I've written or like the the notes I've written um I fight against it and create new things off of that and I build off of that because uh, uh otherwise I wouldn't be able to write anymore I have to stay interested you know sure no I mean yeah it makes sense and I think too like you can get lost in like uh, the trap of like over, you know, just, I just got to keep preparing. I can't start yet. It's not ready yet. Yeah, can, yeah. And then you never start or you put it off or it's like an avoidance tactic, you know? Exactly. I'm kind of like in that phase right now. Like I always, it never gets easier. And like, I'm supposed to start, like I gave myself Friday to start writing and I'm like, last night I was like, Oh, maybe I should give myself another day or two. No, I'm not going to, um, tonight, uh, after I do other other project related stuff, I'm just going to go in and and refine my notes. And tomorrow I'll wake up and add a little bit, the last little bit of those things I need for the notes. And then I will start on third on Friday, no matter what. You yeah. have to be very vigilant about it. You yeah. have to because otherwise it's so easy to say, eh, one more day. And then Saturday comes. This just in my in my situation. Saturday comes around and it's like it's a day that's naturally off. Like you naturally don't have to do too much work. So you wake up and you're like, uh, you woke up like two or three hours later than you expected to. And then you look at your notes and you don't feel like reading them. And then you go on Facebook or Twitter or both. And you're like, eh, no one's doing anything. And then you go outside. <laughs> Before you know it, you haven't done anything. Right. So, like, I, I know for a fact that you have to be vigilant with it, you know? Yeah. So are you, <laughs> so, a, more, are you a morning writer or a night writer or both? I'm whenever, I'm whenever I have free time. I'm, okay. a, I'm an adaptive writer, I guess. Like, tonight I'm going to be working at, on this at night. Okay. So like probably around like 9 p.m. Eastern. What's time. your what's your I mean like what's your ritual? Are you caffeinating? Are you taking Adderall? You seem high energy. Like is it just natural? Um, a natural high energy. So like my usual day, like yeah, I start with correspondence, you know, CCM related stuff, author related stuff, social media for the good first two to three hours of any day. I wake up around like nine or ten, um, and then. I usually write during the middle of the day. If I can, if I can do it, I'll write during the middle of the day, especially during the week when everyone's at work. I can do that. Right. So I don't have people bothering me. I'll write for two, uh, anywhere from two to four hours to get those two thousand words, and of course, editing in between. And that leaves me around like six or seven p.m. Um, afterwards, I take a break until about like nine p.m. where I eat, work out. Maybe play some video games. Um, if it's a day where I like don't feel like doing anything else, I'll just go to a bar or go like meet up with friends or something like that. But otherwise, so around it, nine or ten, I will continue um, doing like other correspondence because like obviously people respond to your correspondence. I'll do other stuff like that. I'll do some editing, some freelance until about midnight, and then around midnight, I'll like watch a movie and then go to bed around three. Jesus Christ! Oh, so are you are you married? You're not married. You can't. No, be. obviously not, man. <laughs> I was going to say, like, because I'm, I'm married, I have a kid, and, like, that definitely changes the game in terms of. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, like. <laughs> you're the, ma you're the no, master of I'm, your domain. You're the, like, this is what you do, and, like, you have. This is what I do. This is what I do. I'm 28 years old, and I feel older than 28, but, yes, I'm just doing it every day. That's what I do. I don't know how long I can do it, but that's what I do. 
Just wait till you have a kid. You're going to have you once you have children. I'm I'm fearful of that, man. I'm fearful of that. Everyone always, especially now, like even more so now. It's like you're 28. You know, you've had some some significant relationships. Well, aren't you thinking about having kids? You know, like maybe you start looking for the girl that's the girl. I'm like, no, I don't know yet. I, I haven't. I'm kind of like busy with other things right now. <laughs> well, you know, there are people who can pull it off. I I tend to think that I don't know. There are people who can pull it off. A lot of them. Um, you have to have money or like the situation where one of the, like yeah. maybe, maybe your spouse is bringing home the bacon or whatever the case may be, but it's a tricky, it's tricky math. And like, I marvel at people who have like, you know, full-time job, three kids and are still like pumping out novels. Like that's insane to me. I don't know. Uh, that is, that's insane to me too. Yeah. It's, I mean like uh, what I just described to you is like out of convenience but like I would probably augment it if I had to take up another job. So right now I'm basically doing school and then part-timing to full-timing CCM and then also writing. Right. But like if I had to put a full-time job in it, I wouldn't say I would change anything. I would just have to augment it because like that's just my way. My way is to just make it work. You're yeah. going to make it work because you, you like it. You love it. So do it. You know, and so it's just a matter of like maybe that 3 a.m. is 4 a.m. and then that – Nine or ten a.m. is eight a.m. <laughs> I don't Jesus know. I'm Christ. naturally I'm naturally an insomniac anyway. Like okay. I'm just constantly like moving. So and I'm I'm seeing like the formula here. It's like kind of like a combination of like the the boxer and the death metal approach to writing. Like I you know I think that's perhaps a- man perhaps yeah. you're seeing it. Then I, I I can't see it. I can't see because it it's me. I guess. But <laughs> well, maybe someone else can tell me what it is. Well, no, yeah. I think it's death metal plus boxing equals you writing. <laughs> uh, yeah, man. But, and, and, and publishing. I'm impressed by your, uh, you know, all the various things that you do. You, you've obviously um, been busy, especially for somebody so uh, relatively young. And so, uh, congrats, trying, man. C- congrats trying. on the new book. And uh, you thanks, know, man. thanks for all you do in publishing and on the indie side of things. And uh, keep at it. Thank you, man. Glad to be here. Okay, folks, that's all she wrote. That's Michael J. Seidlinger. Go get his novel. It's called The Laughter of Strangers, and it's available now from Lazy Fascist Press. You can find Michael online at michaeljseidlinger.com. He's on Twitter, where his handle is at mjseidlinger, and you can also find him on the Facebook. Uh, don't forget to go get your free audiobook over at audibletrial.com slash other people. Uh, thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app. Do you know about the app, the free official Other People app? It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device, and you need to get it, and let me tell you why. Uh, It's the best way to listen to this show. New episodes automatically upload to the app, so you don't have to do anything. It just happens. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. And best of all, uh, you can access premium content and and the show's full archives all via the app. So here's what you do. You download the app, which is free. You get it on your phone or whatever device you have. And then right there within the app, you sign up for premium. It's two bucks a month. That's it. It's two dollars, just two bucks a month. And uh, then when you do that, you have access to everything. That's what your two dollars buys you access to everything. Every single episode, including my conversations with writers like David Shields, Cheryl Strayed, Sheila Hetty, Roxanne Gay, Tao Lin, Kate Sambrino. Sam Lipsight, Eric Larson, Jess Walter, you name it. It's a, it's a cornucopia. <laughs> it's a gold mine of uh, interviews with writers. So please go get the app and support the show for 2 bucks a month by signing up for premium. Once again, that app, the app itself, is free.
All right. So uh, I want you to know that I'm coming out of my paralysis. I am slowly emerging from my heightened state of awareness brought on by the process of reading uh, philosophy, and I am now uh, sinking back into my customary fog. Ah, I feel like myself again. It's good to be operating uh, in a state of everyday somnambulance, completely unaware of the fact that what I think of as myself is merely uh, a series of like rapid-fire atomic collisions and that under a powerful microscope, uh, the behavior of a cell is similar to that of a solar system. Please remember that Isaac Newton died due to complications from a kidney stone and that Charles Dickens was known for taking quote-unquote manic walks that would sometimes extend as long as 25 miles. That is all for now. Thanks once again to Michael Seidlinger. Go get get his novel. Thanks to you guys for listening. I appreciate it. Uh, Go tell your friends about this program evangelize. Please post links on your social media, on your blog. Please function as a de facto public relations professional on my behalf. (laughs) Uh, Can you do that? Am I asking too much? You could tweet about it. You could write a glowing review on iTunes, or perhaps you could poke one of your friends. I believe that's a thing on Facebook. Can't you poke one of your friends? Have you ever poked one of your friends? (laughs) 